Okay, so those of you that are just catching the bus, you missed Judges last week. Uh, some of us, if you look around, if you weren't here last week, there are some, probably the person next to you was, and they have this dazed look still from last week. Sorry about that. Have you recovered from Ehud? No. <laughs> you haven't? No. Okay, yes. Yeah, Ehud, man, what a scandalous text. I warned you, right? I warned you. Um, so now we're moving into Galatians. So we're going back and forth between two books in the Bible. We're doing something we haven't done before here at Redeemer and its existence as a church plant, now church. Uh, so we're going to move from last week from a scandalous text to this week, a scandalous message. Now, here's what that means practically for you and me right now, sitting here right now for me, even preaching and for you listening what that means, if this being a scandalous message means it's going to be incredibly hard for you to understand this message. It's going to be incredibly difficult. So let's say you get lucky. Let's say you get lucky and you understand the message in this text. The scandalous message. You, you hit the jackpot, you get lucky. It's going to be incredibly difficult for you now to accept it. So, I think this text now has our attention, right? And some of us are thinking, now you're thinking, how can you say such a thing that I can't understand the message of this text? I can't accept the message of this text. You know what, scandalous preacher? You saying that scandalous. And then there's others of you that are saying, man, I will understand this text, and I will accept the message of this text. And then there's finally, there's still some others of us are saying, man, why is everybody so worked up in this church? Good night. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? I mean, this is such an old text. The Bible is such an ancient message. Who cares what it says? And then who cares what you Christians think? I mean, you're weird anyways. Not to mention incredibly stuffy and so full of your moral selves. And today's text says to all of us, right? This is all of us in here that might be reacting this way, thinking these things. Here's what the text says to us. The text says, I understand all your doubts and questions. You want to know why? The text is speaking right now. This text that we're about to read is saying to you, I understand your doubts. I understand your questions. I understand your scandalous outrage. You want to know why? Because the person that was closest to Jesus when he was on this earth didn't get me either. It was too difficult for him to understand. It was too difficult for him to accept. The Apostle Peter is one of Jesus' best friends. Like, Maybe his best friend? Did Jesus have a BFF? I've got mine. He was in uh, the inner circle, which was made up of Peter, James, and John, right? He walked with Jesus, literally. He loved Jesus more than you ever will. He experienced Jesus and his salvation more than anyone in this room because he was actually there and experienced it. 
Peter knew Jesus better than 99.9% of Christians that ever walked this earth and will ever walk this earth. Peter was used by God. In the 99.9 percentage of people that are used by God, Peter was used in the 99.9%. He was in the rarefied air of anyone in the history of this planet that walks this earth and will walk this earth. Peter, Jesus called Peter the rock. And it was a personal image for Jesus. He, I mean, for Peter. I mean, Jesus went up to him and says, dude, you're a rock. And then Peter, it was a missional image as well. He's saying, Peter... I am going to use you so much that I'm going to build my church on your ministry. Peter wrote part of the Bible, God's word, which is a big deal. Peter was the first apostle to reach the Gentiles, which means people like you and me. Non-Jewish folks. He was the first one. A trailblazer, a church planner. In the end, when Peter, tradition has it, in the end when Peter was going to be martyred and crucified, he requested to be crucified upside down because he said, I do not deserve to be crucified like my Savior. Peter is a giant in the church. A giant. And Peter has a hard time understanding and embracing and accepting the message in this text. So I wonder how we're going to fare. It's a scandalous message. If we stand for the hearing of God's word. So here we go. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, I have a top ten list for, like, when I get to heaven, I have a top ten list. Like, okay, top ten things I want to ask the Apostle Paul. This might be number one. I know it says a lot about me. You know, it's not like, why didn't you ask him about, like, what was it like when Jesus showed up to you? And what was it like for you to actually love people? No, I want to know what his confrontation with Peter was like. I want a little more information on that. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. In other words, Peter, Peter's an apostle. Peter's a giant in the church, and he withheld welcome and friendship from other Christians that weren't of his race. He withheld love and acceptance from those that were not of his race. In other words, he withheld what one word describes as the most powerful word in all the Bible. It's a word called justification. He withheld justification from other Christians. Today we call that racism. Today we call that bigotry. We call that nationalism. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party were really, really important people. They were super saints because what these people had figured out was actually how to activate God in your life and how to activate God's blessings in your life. And Peter feared them. He feared their criticism. He feared their disapproval. He feared he wouldn't be liked by them. He feared that, that they could actually diminish his importance. 
And he feared the rest of the Jews, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. In other words, they acted, they pretended that they were holier and better than other Christians. Along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now don't miss this. In order for all this to happen, in order for Barnabas and for all these churches to actually participate in this, it had to be a long period of time. In other words, this wasn't a fleeting bad moment where he yelled at the kids. This took months, maybe a year or two, for this whole dynamic to take place in the church in Galatia. The church in Antioch and the church in Galatia is on the edge of failure. In other words, the mission to non-Israelite people from the church is about ready to die right here, right now, right here. You're watching it. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified, that's the first time, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified, that's number two, by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, that's three. That's three times Paul says the same thing differently. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that right now, the reality, the scandalous reality of this message, we know that we cannot and will not understand it or trust it apart from you. And so, Lord, we ask that right now, because of actually the scandalous message of this, this text, that you would hear our prayer and do that. Not because of us, but because of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Peter is a giant in the church, an absolute giant. He's Mount Everest of the apostles. And he has a hard time understanding and embracing, trusting the scandalous message in this text. So what is the scandalous message in this text? What is it? Well, the answer is easy to locate. We've already seen it, and I already mentioned the word. It's easy to find. Uh, it's easy to identify it. But understanding it and trusting it is another thing. So even though you're going to be like, oh, yeah, got it. Understanding it and embracing it is the hardest thing in the world to do. Okay, here we go. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified. There it is, right? By works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. There it is the second time. By faith in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times. We all get it. What's the scandalous message? What's so scandalous that it's hard to accept, hard to trust, and thousands and thousands of years of Old Testament history prove this? And over 2,000 years of church history prove it. Prove that it's so hard to understand. And it's so hard to embrace. And what does all the wreckage today in the church and in the culture and in our homes, and in our personal lives. What does it prove? Here it is. Here's the message. Justification by faith. Got it? All right, good. So we're good. We can go. Justification by faith. This is the scandalous message. Okay, now we don't know what it means yet, right? We don't know, but I want to strike while the iron's hot. So let's strike while the iron's hot. 
Whatever justification by faith means, we know from this text, it heals human hearts. It heals human relationships. It heals churches. It heals apostles. It heals Christians. So even though we don't know what it is, it heals. So let's get a little more specific. What does it actually heal in this text? Justification by faith heals racism. This is deadly serious. Justification by faith heals racism. Not anti-racism. Heals racism between people. What people? Well, let's start with Peter, Barnabas, the church leaders, and whatever rest of the Jews mean. So it heals racism between people, and it heals racism between groups of people. Jew, Gentile, church, another church, cultures, races. Justification by faith. Let's get really specific. What does it heal in this text? Justification by faith. We don't know what it means. It's so hard to understand. It's so hard to accept. But we know, according to this text, justification by faith heals the fear of man. It heals that feeling that you just need to be accepted and loved by other people. It heals that approval addiction that everyone has. It heals that sense of, why do people control me so much? Justification by faith heals that. It heals the fear of criticism. You know, it's one thing to be criticized. Anybody ever been criticized? Right, right. It's one thing to be criticized and have it hit you and hurt. It should. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, it hurts. But it's one thing for criticism to actually condemn the roots of your very being. Justification by faith heals you from that. Not the hurt. But when you get unhinged at the roots of your being because of criticism. What else does justification by faith do in this text? Do you see it? This is incredible. Justification by faith heals church conflict, <laughs> divisions. This is incredible. It, it is a double, it's a double-edged sword or a two-sided coin. On one side, justification by faith is explaining church conflicts personally, interrelationally, and it solves them. Okay, so why are there so many church conflicts and church splits? Justification by faith says, because of me. What do you mean? Because nobody understands me and nobody trusts me. Well, how do you heal all these church conflicts and church strifes? How do you heal all these tension between church leaders? Justification by faith says, hey, come over here. I do that. I was talking with another pastor who's a friend of mine, and he recently says, man, the church sure does eat its own. And I went, you know, nodding, like, yeah. Loads of personal experience with all of that. And then I got even sadder. And I said, you know what's even worse? It's when friends and teammates stand around and let it happen. 
thank God. Thank God that Jesus is making us friends and teammates and a community that do not stand around and let that happen. Whatever justification by faith means, it heals. It heals hearts, it heals relationships, it heals churches. But it also makes hearts healthy. It also makes relationships healthy. It also makes churches healthy. In other words, justification by faith makes healthy Christians, healthy churches. We're just not used to talking like this because we're like, what are you talking about? Because whatever it means, I know that it's for the unbeliever. I know it's for the unchurched and for the skeptic. But Paul, he's, he's bringing justification by faith to another apostle, to heal an apostle, to make an apostle healthy. He's bringing justification by faith to churches, to heal churches, to heal Christians, to make churches healthy, to make Christians healthy. This is so radical because justification by faith in 2,000 years of church history, most people think, oh, that's what the unbelieving, unchurched skeptic needs to hear. Oh, yeah, that's the ABCs of the Christian life. And the Bible says it's the A through Z of the Christian life. It is the central message by which a church stands or a church falls, by which a life stands or which a life falls, by which a relationship stands or which a relationship falls. What are you talking about, Jeff? This is what we're talking about. I'm not talking about it. Paul's talking about it. There's a group of people in the 1500s that got this, a large group of people, and all of a sudden, lots of people started believing this, and when they started believing this, it was incredible and actually changed the whole world. And then you go through church history and you look at, man, up in New England, there was this dude named Jonathan Edwards, and all of a sudden, he started preaching it. And when he started preaching it, it was called the First Great Awakening. Everywhere. This message that we don't understand, justification by faith, everywhere justification by faith is preached, God shows up. Churches exist. Health happens. Healing happens. And you remember what I said Galatians is going to cause us to do? You remember? I mean, we already know judges. Judges is going to cause us to say, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? But remember what Galatians was going to cause us to ask? How come I haven't heard this before? Why hasn't somebody told me this before? I refuse to not be that somebody. Look at how Paul reached and renewed Peter. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Here's the literal translation. You know the word orthodoxy? It actually is an orthodontic word. Harrison, Jane. To make your teeth straight. Ortho, right? The word is ortho here. In other words, they weren't walking in a straight line of the gospel in other words, when I saw that Peter, there's, a, there's, a, there's something called what, what Paul's calling a gospel life. In other words, the gospel's not just the ABCs. The gospel is the Christian life, and there's something called a gospel life, a justification by faith life. And he said, when I was looking at Peter, he went off, off the track. He wasn't 
orthodox. He wasn't living a gospel life. When I saw that, I went up to him. Isn't it interesting? So Paul reaches Peter by justification by faith. Paul heals Peter by justification by faith. This is so important. Notice that Paul does not heal or try to address Peter. Try to reach and renew Peter. Try to change the culture of the church. He doesn't try to do it by powerless messages. He doesn't try to do it by empty messages like stop being a racist. Is Peter being a racist? Yes, he's being a racist. Why didn't Paul go up to him and go, stop being a racist? Why didn't he go up to him and go, hey, you're a jerk? Here are 10 steps to an anti-racist life. Why didn't he? Why didn't he go up to him and say, hey, man, you need to be a spiritually victorious Christian. Here are 10 secrets on how to do that. Or he could have gone up to him and really got into Peter and said, dude, why aren't you being like Moses? Except don't be like him when he smashed the Ten Commandments and when he murdered that Egyptian dude. But other than that, what is the scandalous message in this text? That thousands and thousands of years of Old Testament history prove it's a scandal. Thousands and thousands of years of Old Testament history say it's so hard to understand and it's so hard to accept. And now we've got 2,000 years of church history, experience of 2,000 years of church history that say it's so scandalous, it's so hard to understand, and it's so hard to accept. And then you have your own personal life and your own relationships, and we have all the chaos and the crazy that's going on today as further evidence that it's so hard understand and it's so hard to accept. What is this scandalous message? Well, the answer is justification by faith. Great. Great. What is that? Yet we know that a person is not justified, verse 16, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see what's happening? It's amazing. Like Paul says the same thing three different ways, sometimes in the negative, sometimes in the positive. Then he switches it and says, I'm going to say it negatively on the other side and positively on this side. He's just three times he says the same thing. Now, we know in the Bible, like in the Old Testament, if this was the Old Testament, I'd say to you three times. That's the perfect number. Three repetitions. We sang that song, holy, holy, holy. That wasn't, there weren't four holies. Because in Hebrew, three is perfect. So when Revelation says 666, everybody freaks out, but it's actually pretty logical because seven's perfect. If you're 666, you never get to seven. You're imperfect, imperfect, imperfect. Your salvation always falls short. So Paul, three times, the perfect number in Hebrew, justification, justification, justification. In other words... What he's saying is there's no such thing as a justification-free life. There are two ways to live in life. Justification by faith or justification by works of the law. That's the only two options we have. Because there's no such thing as a justification-free life. Because justification is in your DNA. It's down to your cell level. It's the centrality of being a human being. You 
need to be justified. It works itself out. You have, there's no such thing as a justification-free thought, a justification-free feeling, justification-free desires, relationships, churches. There's no such thing as a justification-free culture. There's no such thing as a justification-free anything. Everything is wired for justification. It's like God made it that way. And Paul is saying to Peter, and he's saying to Barnabas, and he's saying to the church leaders, and he's saying to the churches, and he's saying to you and me, and he's saying to Redeemer, and he's saying to the church in Waco and the church in the United States, and he's been saying it for 2,000 years. Justification explains you. Who am I? Why do I do what I do? What are these driving deep impulses in me? Justification explains you. What about the wreckage of my relationship? Justification explains you. Well, what about how I relate to my work? It's like I have this pathological addiction to it. Justification explains you. Why do I have this need or why does condemnation or criticism of other people undo me? Justification explains you. Well, what about a culture that's going crazy and all this stuff that's going on? Justification explains you. What about all my anxiety? Justification explains you. We either think, feel, desire, trust, love, worship, relate, do work, do church, do ministry by justification by faith or by justification by works of the law. That's all there is. Christianity is so simple. It's so simple. But it's so hard to understand and it's so hard to accept. Everyone here, everyone next to you, everyone you're going to see when you go out to eat is driven by justification. Christianity is justification by faith. Not justification by works. So now we push it. Here it comes. Are you ready? Now we're coming to the scandal. Now we're getting into what heals you and your relationships in this world and what makes you and churches and apostles healthy. Now we're getting to it. Now we're getting to the whole heart of the matter. Now we're getting to that to that place where churches stand, churches fall. Relationships stand, relationships fall. Cultures stand, cultures fall. Countries stand, countries fall. Now we're getting to that place. The, I'm just so glad we're not messing around with like lower tier issues this morning. Here it is. You ready? Here's what changes the world. A justification by what Jesus has done. Not a justification by what you do. A justification by what Jesus has done. Justification by faith. Not a justification by what you do. Justification by works of the law. Peter is, Paul is saying to Peter, 
Peter, you're justified, you're recognized, you're acceptable, you're perfect, you're glorious, you have a solid self, you have an intact identity, you are righteous, you are cosmically important. Before God, and before others, and before yourself, because yourself also judges you, others judge you. Before the law, you know, like the different big ten, and also like the little laws of life that everyone has, like capability, success, thinness, whatever it is. Peter, you are justified before God and anyone else that matters because of what Jesus has done, not what you do. So, Peter, you're not justified by your race. You can stop being a racist. So, Peter, you're not justified by your nationality, so you don't have to be a nationalist. So, Peter, you're not justified by your ideology and your political theories, so you don't have to be a jerk. So, Peter, you're not justified by what those men think of you over there, those important super saints over there. You already have your approval. You already have your acceptance. You already have the justification of your very being. And all of a sudden, Peter comes to his senses. All of a sudden, he's healed. All of a sudden, he's healthy. All of a sudden, he's like repenting and he's confessing and all of a sudden he's changing and all of a sudden he's healthy and he starts loving people and all of a sudden he's a rock. He's the rock. All of a sudden Peter experiences justification by faith. So Peter is healed and made healthy by justification by faith and we haven't even touched the the most scandalous part of it yet. You know, if we were to look at Peter's greatest hits album, this is what it includes. Are you ready? Jesus tells him to walk on water, but Peter sinks. Jesus tells the disciples about his cosmic death. It's the high point. Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus is turned towards Jerusalem. He tells them about his cosmic death. And Peter says, no, that's not happening. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus ever said, like, get behind me, Satan, to me, I, I, I wouldn't get up in the morning. It'd be over. It'd be done. Being called Satan's never a good thing, right? All right, Jesus asked Peter to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his cosmic death. So the next morning, Jesus is going to go to his cosmic death. He says, Peter, can you pray three times for me? Peter falls asleep three times. Three times. In that Gethsemane, Peter draws his sword. He becomes all of a sudden courageous. And he chops off the ear of a soldier. And Jesus rebukes him again and puts the ear back. Peter is told by Jesus, look, Peter, you're going to betray me three times, dude. And Peter goes, no way, Jesus. No, so no, you're going to betray me three times. No way, Jesus. You're going to betray me three times. These losers might, Jesus, but I never will. Jesus betrays, three, betrays Jesus three times within a span of three minutes. 
After the resurrection, Peter's looking at John because Jesus seemed to be showing him some attention. And he goes up to Jesus and he says, well, what about that dude over there? How successful is his ministry going to be? How long is God going to use him on this earth? More than me? Jesus rebukes him again. And then, of course, there's the mess we're looking at right now, right? In Galatia. One author, David Zoll, says it this way. Peter even loses the race to the empty tomb, so he's in a foot race and he can't even win that. If we listen, if we listen, God is saying something incredibly powerful to you right now this morning. God is saying something incredibly personal to this church right now this morning. If we listen, it's this. If there's a worse Christian who ever lived on the earth, this is what God is saying. If there's a worse Christian who ever lived on the face of this earth, it's Peter. It's Peter. And I justified him. I justified the worst Christian who ever lived. And now we're getting to what's so hard to understand, and now we're getting to the most difficult part, the most scandalous part of justification by faith, because God turns to the worst Christian who ever lived and justifies. God takes the evil and accepts them. God takes the bad people and says, man, I love you. I'm giving you everything. This is so hard to understand. Paul later in the greatest book ever written, he's going to say it this way, God justifies the ungodly. And everyone gasped in Rome and said, what did you just say? I just said, God justifies the ungodly. No, no, no. What did you just say? I just said, God justifies the ungodly. Wait, he doesn't justify the godly? He doesn't justify good people? So he doesn't justify these super saints, these people that figured out how to activate God, you know, the people that get all the bestseller books and the pack the stadiums. God accepts sinners. God approves the unapprovable. And this is so hard to understand, but this, this is everything. This is Christianity. This is your justification. This is your righteousness. This is your honor. This is your beauty. This is your importance. This is your recognition. This is your power. This is your healing. This is your health. This is your acceptability. This is everything that drives within you is finally and fully, ultimately fulfilled. And you say, but this is so hard to accept. And I'm like, I know. How can this be? I know. How can I understand this? I know. And here's why you can. Because it's what Jesus has done. It's justification by what Jesus has done. 
you can, the ungodly and the worst Christian can be justified because it's what Jesus has done. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's Jesus' honors. It's Jesus' acceptance. It's Jesus' approvability. It's Jesus' perfection. It's Jesus' victory. This is now yours. And it's so scandalous. So, what do we do? Well, you got two options before you. You can't avoid a justification-free life. I'm sorry. The Bible says you will live for justification. You will live from the moment you come into this world to your last dying breath. Everything you do will be consumed by justification. Your relationships, your psychological well-being, the way you relate to everything in your life will be consumed by justification. So there's no justification-free life. So the Bible tells us you got two options, justification by faith because of what someone else has done or justification by works of the law by what you do. And so I say, let's understand this. I say, from what God wants us to do is accept this. Let's live a justification by what Jesus has done life. Let's learn to build our messy lives around that. Let's learn to build our messy relationships around that. Let's learn how to do this together. Because who honestly knows how to do this? But what if God gave us each other, a team, friends, to learn how to do this together. Maybe that's what the church is all about. Amen.